0: it is a six a six Tom the question we're going to be discussing this week is how do you store and care for your game books how do you use them at the game table
1: Wow. Well, if you were using the video here. You would see that there's yeah, yeah. a shelf behind me. So yeah, <laughs> that's how I store them. One of my babies. I showed yeah. this to another podcaster, and I think he's still recovering and may need some <laughs> therapy after yeah. I showed it to him. But yeah, this is the this is the gem of my collection, and it's not even art. It's not even D and D book. It's the Delta Green Countdown in mint condition. Oh,
2: beautiful. Oh, wow. And you Deer played Cthulhu. that. But... I have, and if I were a smarter person, I would have bought a copy in the '90s. Now that they go for like a trillion dollars on eBay, uh, uh, but I'm not yeah.
0: a, a very smart person. All uh, right, well, let's let's back up just one second here and uh, introduce us.
2: Yeah, so I'm Chris Salzman, and I'm Andy Rao.
0: Yeah, and this week we're uh, joined by Tom Knaus.
2: Well I'm Tom. Thanks for joining yeah. us. No problem. Uh, yeah, so
0: Tom, we, uh, we got wind of you. Um, your publisher actually contacted us to see if you wanted to come on, on the show uh, because you're in the midst of a, a Kickstarter right now for the uh, Tawal supplement. That's correct. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, Tawal is an expansion to our um, campaign setting for the World of the Lost Lands. It is, consists of two books, actually. The first book is Tawal, which is the uh, campaign setting book. It is your gazetteer, your guide... To this um, particular island, which is in the southern continent of our Lost Lands world, uh, okay. it includes um, an overview of the island, it includes a history, includes the people, uh, details equipment, um, it provides the faiths and traditions of the entire island, <laughs> and that is the main book, along with an appendix of you know various like you know um, interesting facts about the island. The second That's book expensive. is actually okay. called uh, Adventures in Tawal, it has three adventures in it, one written by me, one written by my friend Rob Manning, who's done work for Rite Publishing and some work for Frog God Games, and the other is written by Tim Hitchcock, if you're familiar with Paizo and Pathfinder. Uh mm-hmm. a name you know very well. Good friend of mine for a long time, and yeah. we finally got a chance to work together, so it was awesome. We also have a couple add-on adventures as well. They're going to be called Maze and Monsters, M-A-I-Z-E, okay. a little bit of a play yeah. on the old Tom Hanks <laughs> movie of the Satanic Panic of the 80s. And an homage to the old C1, which is going to be Hidden Shrine of Tamakanats, which is kind of my name thrown up uh-huh. together in Nawal. Also going to have a um, system-specific guidebook for 5e, Pathfinder, and Swords and Wizardry that will let you play class options that are designed for the setting, as well as magic items, equipment, and spells for the setting. So we're really excited about it. We did a lot of research, and it is a fictional work. It's not... This is not um, role-playing in 16th century Mexico. It's in a fictional setting, but it is very inspired by the Aztecs. So we did a lot of research to make sure we got a lot of things right in doing this. That's super cool.
0: So how long have you been working on this, then? It sounds extremely extensive.
2: Um, Research and write time, about a year and a half. Okay. At the time of this uh, recording, at least, you've blown past the Kickstarter's main goal and are well into stretch goals. Is that correct? That is correct. We uh, funded in seven hours. Nice. Um, we hit our first stretch goal in
1: probably like 20. We hit a second one, I believe, today or the, early this morning. And hopefully we'll hit another one tomorrow. And then we'll add another adventure to the Adventure in Tawal book, bringing yes. it up four t- adventures in total.
2: Are there That's any stretch dope. goals in particular that you're really personally hoping that you hit just for your own reasons? Yeah, definitely. We want to get that
1: second Tim Hitchcock adventure in this book, Um okay. yeah. of the Drowned Serpent. Uh, if you're familiar with him as a writer for – um, Paizo. Uh, he did the Kingmaker, which is a big oh, early yeah. uh, Paizo uh, adventure path. Everyone when he I bring him on the show, they'll say oh my god, I love Kingmaker so much and they're redoing Kingmaker. <laughs> yeah. So it's really worth trying to get that second adventure by Tim in the book. That would be awesome if we can do that.
2: Yeah, that's great. Kingmaker is one of those, if you pick up one uh, adventure path, that's usually one of the top ones people recommend at least in my experience. So how did you decide that that now was the right time to do uh, this particular setting.
1: You know, how this all came about really was the fact that um, I had been working for Frog God Games, you know, uh, for about eight years. And I was kind of always the guy who got, you know, volunteered for doing that job that no one really wanted. So it's like, we really wanted to do this, (laughs) but nobody, you know, feels comfortable doing this. (laughs) So you do it. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. So I did all the Perilous Vistas books, which were environmentally uh, focused Pathfinder products, and which are very crunch heavy. So I did those. And then it was like I was supposed to do something else. It's like, oh, my God, we need someone to fill in on doing the World of the Lost Lands for 60,000, 70,000 words. Like, pronto, can you do it? I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I do that. And then they came to me, actually, and said, what do you want to do? Because you've oh, done it. Nice. You know, we've asked. You know, now here's your big chance to do something you want. And this was what I wanted to do. I really wanted to bring this culture to life. I really wanted to create um, a campaign edition uh, that would celebrate it and, um, you know, make people more aware of it. Because it's very unfortunate, you know, I, I, we were talking beforehand that you're a history buff. And, you know, the fact that they disappeared so quickly. From civilization that within two years the empire basically collapsed entirely and almost disappeared almost shortly thereafter and we really think that it's really you know obviously it's tragic but it's something that we wanted to really make the people aware of and give them something different to do you know we're so accustomed to doing the same you know kind of eurocentric products you know Mm -hmm. a Viking setting uh, you know feudal Britain or um yeah. kind of feudal, you know, France or Spain or whatever. And there's so few that do this type of yeah. civilization and culture. And we really wanted to be the ones who, um you know, do the, do the groundbreaking work here. I, I like to do things that are different. I don't like doing the same stuff, you know, right. otherwise I wouldn't have been the one who did the perilous, Sisters books or, you know, did some other kind of niche products. And we thought that this was something that, people would want that they are interested in it, but there's never been a product that's really grabbed them and caught their attention. This one did. So
2: basically has some personal interest uh, for you. Have you had the idea of writing a setting like this for a long time? And this was just the right opportunity to do it then, you know, all the stars kind of aligned for this Mm because it was something I've wanted to do, but you know,
1: I'm not, I wasn't in the position to say either a self finance it and do it myself. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Or B, someone really, really wanted it. So when I had the opportunity to do it, I jumped at it. And everything worked out.
2: So you were talking about how uh, it would be fantastic to see some settings and adventuring contexts that are different than sort of the really familiar medieval Europe uh, stuff. Can you give us like, a little pitch of like, what does the adventuring life look like in this setting and how is it different from party of adventurers uh, blundering their way through, you know, medieval Germany type settings?
1: Um, a couple things. One is this is a less dungeon oriented setting. It is a wetland by and large, um, mm-hmm. like, just, just like, you know, um, 16th century Mexico was. That's why Tishnachetlan was built in a dried lake bed. Um, so we try and focus a little more on the wilderness. So there are adventuring opportunities outdoors. Also, we had to make some really important decisions when we came up with this concept. What do we want to do in terms of technological advancements as opposed to, you know, 16th century Mesoamerica? Do we want to introduce gunpowder? Do we want to introduce steel? Do what, what do we want to introduce? And one of the things we felt strongly about was not introducing horses. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah we felt okay. that horses kind of, like, detracted from mm-hmm. it because they didn't exist at the time in, you know, in Mesoamerica. So we felt, well, adding the horse makes a couple problems. One is the island's not that big. Water travel is still very viable, and even overland travel is still very viable because you're only talking about, I don't want to say only, but you're talking about an island roughly the size of a Midwestern state, which... It's large for us thinking that way, but in terms of the Lost Lands campaign setting, it's like a tiny, almost like a tiny speck on the map. Uh, We felt that introducing horses would really kind of detract from it, and it wouldn't feel, I guess, feel right. Other things, you know, we thought of that we thought would advance it would be, granted the ancient Aztecs didn't have warships, but in this version they do because they're an island nation. They Mm -hmm. trade with other communities and other islands, um, and they defend themselves, so it made sense for them to have warships. Plus, this is also a fantasy setting, so they're in contact with other other peoples. Elves, dwarves, halflings, um, who could introduce this technology, or they could get some of the technology and improve upon it. And in some respects, that's what they did as well. If you're not familiar, um, the ancient Mesoamericans had rubber. It wasn't the rubber we know of today. It was a very... Um, you know, flexible material, but it wasn't like it is now. But in this version, we actually had a little bit of an advancement where they discovered how to vulcanize it to some extent. We introduced that as well. So we wanted to make sure that we presented the uh, people who are known as the Asleys as a sophisticated, advanced civilization with a lot of technological achievements and cultural advancements as well. To present them in you know in, in that light, rather than you know being kind of like I don't want to say backward, but, you know, less mm-hmm. technologically or less sophisticated, you know, in that respect. Is there
0: anything that you learned in your research that, like, just really grabbed you? That's just, like, a, a fascinating fact that everybody should know about the Aztecs?
1: Yeah, they actually were one of the first societies that implemented um, compulsory education. So Really? Yeah. <laughs> you went to school from an early age, so from yeah. roughly the age of, like, seven or eight. Um, you would attend school now, it depended upon your social status, what type of school you attended. Yeah. Um, it also depended upon whether you 're a boy or girl. so girls mm-hmm. went to a school that was more geared towards maintaining the household and doing those sorts of things. whereas boys went to a school that was more uh, military centered where you got military training, but you also mm-hmm. got training in other um, disciplines you know you might get math, science, history. Um, religion, those type of things. Yeah, so yeah. it was a very sophisticated education system that they had.
0: Did that make its way into the the, um, the setting?
1: Absolutely. The first adventure is yeah. actually set in a school. Oh. Cool. Yeah. So I like think you just,
0: Hogwarts, you just sold me on by the yeah, way. Sold, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, so some of the stuff really you were great, just yeah. saying, in the last couple of years, I feel like there's been a growing discussion about presenting non-Western European settings and cultures in a way that's Respectful and authentic, and it doesn't exoticize them or fall back on stereotypes. Can you talk a little bit about how you approached that challenge as you wrote this? Yeah, we actually
1: um, have a bibliography for this book of a lot of the sources that we relied upon. Um, Some were video, so there's some good documentaries on the Aztecs. There's also some good books, obviously, that we researched. Um, We also brought in a uh, sensitivity reader who oh, great. Is, uh, has a background in anthropology and also from South America, who looked yeah. at the text and said, you know, there are a few things he said, you know, you should do this, you should do that. Fortunately, nothing like glaring, like, oh, my God, I can't believe you did this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, which was good. But, you know, a few things that we kind of like, you know, didn't think about like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of get that because we're not like, thinking of it, uh, you know, in the, those yeah. terms. So, You know, those are the steps we really took to make sure that we um, did this properly. Mm -hmm. I'll speak for myself and I'll speak for the other members of the writers, myself, Rob Manning, and Tim Hitchcock, is we wanted to make sure we were respectful of this and we really admired these people. You know, there's no mentions of, there's no conquistadors and other people have asked us about that. Oh, so what point do you introduce the conquistadors? There are no conquistadors. I had zero intention of introducing that element to this. Um, We wanted to celebrate these people and not you know that portion of history so yeah, yeah. uh yeah. you know so we we felt that doing you know taking those precautions and and looking at it you know trying to look at things through a different set of eyes is challenging and that's why we did need some outside consultation to help us with that and also remaining true to the sources as best we could but also remembering that this is fictional we're not trying yeah. to do this as a historical rec- you know, recreation it's more of to be inspired by the people of mexico of central america and mesoamerica than to be simply a carbon copy of it that of course a little leeway, um but we still mm-hmm. had to again walk that line to make sure we were respectful and uh and in our hearts
2: were in the right places for this yeah, yeah. it's fantastic That's to really hear good. that i'm really glad uh yeah it's, you've obviously given a lot of uh, a lot of thought and, and uh, reflection so it's great to hear yeah I have a very trivial question uh, compared to that very sure. serious uh, question. And that is, on the, on the video for the Kickstarter introducing it, there is some great art, by the way. And one of those pieces of art shows what looks to me like a wizard like throwing a piece of flaming corn. Uh, is that? Can you tell me what's going on in that picture? All right. We, we all call that
1: maze girl. And it was the intent was she is a wizard or sorceress and she has a spell where she, she can light it on fire and it actually will explode when it hits <laughs> oh, its target. We couldn't do all of those special effects in yeah. in the art piece. So
2: we felt that just letting you, your imagination do the work and figure out what exactly this will do would be cool enough. I mean, the, odd, uh, the answer is like a 10 foot radius burst of popcorn, right? Uh, exactly. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can right. think
1: that, you know, so, uh, You know, we thought that was one of the things that was kind of cool about this. And everyone who's seen that piece of art is like, oh, it's one of my favorites, was was Girl. Because they thought it was an interesting take on, you know, being the, you know, again, not just um, empowering the uh, indigenous
2: peoples, but also having, you know, a female sorcerer doing this. Oh, yeah. Like when you were, you know, writing spells like that or coming up with character concepts like that, did you find that um, it was pretty easy to adapt the D&D Pathfinder swords and uh, wizardry rules to fit the setting? You know, because D&D and uh, its various iterations come with a a pretty strong set of assumptions about like how magic works and uh, how combat works and that sort of thing. Did you find that it it was a challenge or not too bad to make this fit um, to well? You know, it
1: was actually easier than I thought. Mm -hmm. The reason is we were able to draw a lot of different inspirations than what has usually been done. So we were able to pull out, like, for instance... We took ordinary items that would appear in, in, like, for instance, an Aztec pantry, and we made them into magical items. So, for instance, oh. there's, like, magical, um, uh, magical pumpkin seeds, which were here in the New World, and we said, okay, they do this, 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 and this. So, we were also able to take different military traditions and also different um, outlooks and perspectives and shape them to the magic that we wanted uh, reading of omens and portends was very important in the Aztec world, it was something that they did and concentrated on a lot. So, we built a lot of that into the character classes and what they could do. So, that rather than being just pure, um, and it, forgive me, I don't play Warcraft, but I have a friend who does. He always uses the word DPS, I guess that's damage per yeah. second, yeah, yeah, something like that. More, instead of being more damage per second oriented, <laughs> we wanted to make them to be more insightful and more like. There's one like sorcerer that can kind of briefly glimpse into the future, and get like little bits and pieces of information that they can use. So we thought that drawing from those different inspirations is what been then what's been done before gave us a lot more avenues to explore in creating the mechanics. I mean the mechanics, you know, pretty much conform to the five E and the Pathfinder. I'm a very big stickler on crunch. I don't like crunch. That's very vague, ambiguous. Uh, my motto is if I really, if every character would want this, I did it wrong because it's broken. Okay.
2: Uh, interesting. Um, yeah.
1: You know, being able to draw from those different sources and dif- draw from different inspirations and ideas, I think really helped us mechanically because we weren't falling into the same character X gets plus one bonus to hit instead of yeah. you know, character X gets one extra spell per level or that kind of thing. It was more of character X gets to do this different cool ability instead. This is really cool. Yeah, I'm I'm
0: excited that you came on to talk about this. I think I'm going to go back it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I've, but, I've been totally
2: uh, yeah. sold by this conversation. And, you know, before yeah. we jump into the topic, let's just uh, reiterate, this is the um, Tehual uh, Kickstarter. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly, but it's spelled T-E-T-U-A-T-L if you're Googling it. If you Google Frog God Kickstarter, you know, you'll see uh, information about this and at the Frog God site uh, for sure, right? Anything else that you want to any other sites or anything like that you want to plug real quick for people that want to learn more about this? Yeah, it's actually, um, I have to correct you on the spelling. It's T-E-H-U-N-T-L. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got the pronunciation right, and then I botched the got the, the pronunciation I right, the spelling yeah. wrong. So it's okay.
1: It's Tawal. Um, well. uh, you can find us on our socials. Um, our website is froggodgames.com. That's primarily the store. So I will warn you, if you're looking for information on Tawal, well, you're probably not going to find a lot on that because that's primarily the storefront for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, our most active social media is probably Facebook. So, uh, like the Frog God Games uh, page. We'll keep you updated on Tawal. You can follow me personally. I'm Tom Canales 52 um, at Facebook. I have a little Nandor with a little pink doll as my profile. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> if you're into what we do in the shadows, big yes. favorite yes, show. The- that's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> yeah. we also uh have a heavy discord presence so we have a frog god games discord server um yeah. and you can reach us there so you can post there to actually now has its own channel on yeah. the frog god uh page so any you know information you want to learn about to wall any one thing you want to say about it any yeah. comments you know feel free to stop by and we'll address them as we can and again kickstarter right now it's lost lands to you should be able to search it and find it there and you know hopefully pledge and uh you know, get what we think is a really amazing product. Yeah.
2: So, hey, um, shall we jump into our, uh, the topic yeah. at hand? We have to start. So, uh, earlier in the show, uh, Tom was holding up, we were talking about our game books, and Tom was holding up his uh, mint-looking condition of a Delta Green Countdown. Is that right? That's correct. So, is that your, did, is that your prize RPG possession? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I, so, like, I love
2: it. It's, uh, you know, I bought it. I was, I'm a huge Cthulhu fan, too. I love
1: GMing Cthulhu. I love playing Cthulhu. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to write Cthulhu soon. us oh, fantastic. Oh, nice. And, you know, I remember when Pagan Publishing first came out and I saw that book and I'm like, you know, I really want, I really want. I see it's coming out. I ordered it and I got it right away, like in the first batch. And, you know, it's it just sits on my shelf. I've never honestly used it. Uh, (laughs) I've read through it. I I mean, it's like I I haven't done that. But, you know, it's just kind of like my baby up there. I'm not a huge collector. I don't have a lot of the. I had all the first C stuff. Um, I have probably all the second-y stuff. Where it is, I couldn't tell you right now, but that's the only really quote-unquote collectible RPG mm-hmm. item I have right now.
0: We should so. probably start by all admitting like, what percentage of our shelf we've never actually run. Um, and I would say mine's for like 75%, but if I'm truthful, probably 90%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about you, <laughs> Eddie?
2: Yes. <Yeah>. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. This is probably a shameful thing. But yeah, uh, maybe... Maybe for me, the stuff I brought in, let's bump it down to like 65%. Okay. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. But I don't have a problem. It's not a problem. It's uh, Yeah. (laughs) Do do you keep your collection kind of slimmed down just to what you use, or do you have a a bunch of stuff that uh, is gathering dust? Yeah, I have to say I have have stuff that gathers dust.
1: You know, I do support a lot of Kickstarters um, for a lot of my friends and other people in the industry, and, you know, I do look through them, but have I actually been able to play them? Probably not. So yeah. I would say I would say it's more along Chris's line,
2: probably about 85, 80% probably I haven't oh actually played. I have this problem where when game lines go are ended or replaced by a new edition, there's like this window of time when everybody is ditching their books from the previous edition, and I will go scoop up a whole ton of those. There's this window of time. If you wait too long, they start becoming collectible again, and they, the prices skyrocket. But there's this like golden window, like where you can swoop in and pick up stuff for cheap. So I'm afraid that that accounts for an awful lot of the uh, stuff clogging up my bookshelves uh, at the moment. <laughs> now we don't have to talk just about you know like rare game books here, but Chris, uh, you are newer to the hobby. I'm an oldie who's been uh, you know gaming since. Uh, the early first edition days I've, you know, over the years I've accumulated, you know, some old books that are now a little bit more valuable and stuff like that. But I'm curious as someone kind of who's come into the hobby in the last five years, what, what do you think of these, you know, expensive or rare or collectible books? Do you have any, any that you have your eye on or is that just, or or are you content with what is being produced right now?
0: I'm mostly content. What's interesting is so like when, when I came into the hobby, right, PDFs were an established thing my collection is split amongst digital and and print, you know, this is very different from like, say my video game collection, which a lot of that, you know, like the digital stuff makes me sad. I'd rather have, you know, the physical editions and and things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, like the, you know, the books that I have on the shelf, they're, they're, I treat them more as reference material at this point, you know, ask me in 20 years, you know, it's like all my stuff like, Oh, that's, you know, I have to keep that forever. Right. That's my, (laughs) you know, that's my, um, you know, the game that I started with, you know, that sort of thing. But yeah, it's uh, you know, I don't really own own too much stuff that I would consider rare, or that I'd even say that is going to be rare in, at some point in the future. So right. it all just sort of sits on a shelf, right? Like it's just it's another collection of books in my collection that I'll pull off as I need to. I say all that, but then now I remember that I, I do have like a old Dungeon Master's Guide that I that I picked up at a used bookstore that I love. <laughs> so
2: okay, yeah. So there you go. When you guys run games, what do you have actually at the table? Do you have what books will we find at your GMing seat? Tom, do you want to start? I go pretty light, so it's going to be usually just whatever
1: book I'm running for an adventure, um, a player's guide, a DM's guide, and a monster guide usually. That's pretty much mm-hmm. it. I go streamlined. I don't like to bring a ton of books or resources because I figure that I usually do bring my um, Chromebook. So mm-hmm. if I really desperately need to search something that's on either you know, OGL, I can just click it really quick instead of drag down, you know, 20 books from my my office. So yeah. that's pretty much my approach to it.
0: Do they, Your players all have books on the table, too? Or do you?
1: Yeah, yeah, they, they yeah. pretty much do, yeah.
0: Yeah, when I'm it... running stuff, I will I will mostly have, yeah, the just whatever the adventure module, you know, whatever the notes are for that. Um, I'll often bring other books, but I rarely reference them. Um, to me, it's more important to sort of keep things moving and getting things exactly right. Like oftentimes, sometimes like players will have more books out on the table than I do. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. But...
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, something similar. Well, usually I'm the only one really with, uh, with the rule books, to be mm-hmm. honest. And maybe there will be like one person has the rules, but typically I invested in like, you know, the $60 hardcover covers. And everybody else of ours uses them at the table as needed. But kind of following up with that, I, w- I was wondering, uh, like the topic of game books as physical artifacts that you use in play is an interesting one to me, because I feel like in the last decade or so, we, you've seen more game books produced that seem intentionally designed to be useful at the table, not just as like a reference that you read before while you're preparing your game so like a really simple example is there are more game books out there right now that use like the margin space in the book to like provide cross references key terms or phrases that sort of thing that's a really simple example but and tom you kind of bring a publisher's perspective to this what delights you when you discover it in a game book like what what delights you because it will make your actual physical job of running the game a little easier. Let me start by sharing one of mine. I love it when I can, this will sound dopey, but I love it when I can lay a game book flat with like both of both of the covers on the table like flopped open and it sits open at the page I want. And <laughs> it it sounds like a like really petty dumb thing, but like there's a large number of books that just don't do that for whatever reason. Either because the spine makes a a scary noise when you do that <laughs> or um you know, a lot of stuff like I with some print on demand stuff, just I don't know the specifics of binding, but you know there's ways you can bind books that make that possible in ways that don't and i I won't not buy a book because it isn't it won't lay flat, but I'm always like I get a smile on my face when I realize aha <laughs> I can plop this down in front of me with with it just laying open to whatever page I need so does did anything do you guys have any like little things like that that you look for for me art is so important so. Ah. If there's-
1: something where I can show a player a picture of what it looks like or what the artist's vision look like, rather than me reading a description of it, I think that tends to capture their attention more than me, you know, reading uh, eight to ten lines of box text to describe mm-hmm. what this monster looks like or what this room looks like or whatever. Yeah. And from a publisher's perspective, I'll be honest, um, the biggest seller, I- I've been in booths for I don't even know how many years, 20 years. The biggest seller is art by far. Mm-hmm. I mean, the customer who comes to the booth and looks at a book, the first thing they look at, as the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover. Well, they judge the book by its cover. <laughs> yes, yes. So if the cover art sucks, <laughs> they will simply put it down. If the cover yeah. art attracts their attention, they'll look at it, and then they'll leaf through it. Now, obviously, unless they attended a speed reading course, they're not speed reading a 500-page book in the 10 minutes they're standing in the booth. They're flipping through it, looking at the art, looking at the maps, looking at the cartography. Um, and those are the things from a publishing perspective that attract the eyes and bring customers in because, again, nobody's going to pre-read the book before they buy it. They're going to mm-hmm. you know, glance through it, see the art,
2: see if it captures their attention, and if it does, they'll buy it. If it doesn't, they'll put it down. It's just it's interesting to have that confirmed, because if you go online and I realize just going online to talk about anything is probably just a mistake right there. <laughs> but uh, but, you know, you you do see people saying, oh, you know, I don't want all this fancy art. I just want more content or something like that. And and I always read that. And I'm always like, first of all, do you really think that like, do you truly want a book that's just a bunch. Of like a big wall of text on every page. <laughs> Secondly, I just don't think that's how most people operate. Anyway, interesting to hear that confirmed from the publisher perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a stable of artists that have worked on a lot of Frog God games? Um, we have a great um, art director,
1: um, Casey Christofferson, who does a lot of writing for Frog God and now has stepped in the shoes of being the art director. Um, he teaches art in high school, so he actually recruits some of his students as artists. Um, so we do have uh, pretty much a let's call it a short list of artists mm-hmm. for us so um, I'll rattle off some of the names um Adrian Linderos, um, Colin Chan uh Santa Norviset, um Hector Rodriguez, Julio Carvalho um, those are some of the artists we tab right away for any project we have. Um, we can go beyond that if we need to there's several others I just saw. One of my friends, Alice, is having a book coming out, Daughter of the moon God, I believe is the name of it, and she had a cover. I was just like, "Whoa, this cover is amazing! Who did it And she threw a new and you threw a new name at me I'm like, "Oh wow, this is incredible i'm I'm amazed by it um but we do have a core group of artists who do work for us, and you know occasionally we'll bring somebody new in or you know tap somebody who uh want or you know who worked for us in the past, but isn't available often, who can do it. So Mm -hmm.
2: it's usually a a pretty uh, stable crew. Can you guys think of any game books or products that the art won you over pretty much yourself? Mm -hmm. You know,
1: one of the ones that has some amazing art in it for us is Sword of Air was one of our first color books. And Sword of Air has some amazing maps and amazing color. Um, Teagle Manor is another one. We redid the old Judges Guild um, book. Uh, Oh, yeah a while ago and that also was renowned for its its cartography. Alyssa Faden, if you're not familiar with her, yeah. is an amazing cartographer and she did the cartography in that book and the maps are just simply stunning. I mean, the detail, um, the precision that they're done with, uh, it's just wow. We actually had a full length tapestry that measured about 8 feet by 12 feet of her map for Teagle Manor at a convention. Oh. Literally rolled out on the floor. Oh then, that's like cool. looking at it, like going
2: through it. And it was incredible. That sounds great. Oh, mm mm-hmm.
1: yeah. yeah. How about <laughs> you, Chris? Have
2: you been swayed by a piece of art? Oh yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a sucker.
0: Uh, yeah, the uh, the one that I just jumped to mind immediately is Mothership.
2: Yeah. It's I was that, thinking like,
0: that, too. that mothership RPG. Um, just something about it is like really minimalist. Um, it just really it grabbed me enough when people were talking about it that I just I went out immediately and bought a copy. So just like I needed to have it on the shelf. I want to play it too, right, You <laughs> know, at some point. But it's like, yeah, something like that that can just grab you and really pull you in and get you kind of hyped about the setting is really fantastic. Um, I'm also, I'm planning a cyberpunk campaign that's going to happen at some point soon. So I, I bought a stack of books. And I mean, you talk about like, a setting that's sort of right for just, like, cool art, right? Like, just flipping through those books is super fun because you're just, like, you're seeing all this stuff, like, oh, that's awesome. Like, it would be really fun to encounter that thing, (laughs) you know, in the game. Um, Yeah, and I find that that's, like, exactly what you're saying, Tom. Like, you know, it's like you see that and you're like, okay, that makes more sense than me talking about this for 10 minutes. Like, just look at this picture. Yeah, that's that's what we're going for here.
2: Yeah, like Cyberpunk, that's a good example of a setting where it's just – it looks like this, like, and holding up a picture is way mm-hmm. better than trying to just, just blab on for a paragraph about the cool the... cyberpunk character you're faced with, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> for me, the um, Dungeon Crawl Classics, when it first came out uh, and its use of that, uh, I forget the main artist's name, but the, it, if you've seen it, you know, it has that really incredibly compelling old school looking art That's it's old school, but it's not just it's not just aping, you know, AD&D first edition art. it's um, it's doing something interesting with that. It's aesthetic, and especially flipping through those modules. It's almost possible, impossible for me to not buy one of those modules when I flip through because the cart the maps they have in that are just especially when they came out, it came out like a decade or so ago. I just never seen any maps like that, that instead of doing the standard like we're going to create like a satellite photo looking down from above sort of picture, Dungeon Call Classics has these incredibly stylized, like quirky maps that aren't set exactly to scale or anything like that. And obviously that won't work for every game, but that completely mm-hmm. pulled me over when I first saw the art um, for that one. So anyway, sorry about the uh, the big art tangent. But uh, <laughs> no, it's, but... it's a big part of game books.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, so something that I found myself doing more recently is... Is like photocopying parts of books, you know, to, for using it for use at the table. I think partly because, like, going back to what you were saying, Andy, about some books just don't lay flat. Like, it just—it's easier sometimes just to have part of the book. So I'm wondering, yeah, do you, do y'all ever do that, where you'll just like kind of come with, with maybe only notes, and that's what you're primarily referencing, or are you always using the
2: game book whenever whenever you have it? I do something similar to that. If I am using like a published adventure or something like that, I will usually not have that like adventure book open in front of me, but rather photocopies or if it's a PDF like printouts of the, the specific pages I'm likely to reference. So Mm -hmm. anything that has a map, I will have printed out so I can scribble all over it. And then, um, you know, if there's just key encounter information, I'll make sure that that's photocopied or printed out. And that's partly to avoid having to flip through the book. I think there's just something a little bit momentum killing anytime the GM has to, pause and, you know, flip their way through a book to get to information. When I,
1: when I usually run something, it's something I wrote. So yeah, it's in my (laughs) head. So I, I've actually, my famous story is I uh, actually ran a convention game on a post-it that I wrote on a post-it note. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Ran the yeah. entire game, and no, nobody knew the difference. They couldn't tell. Yeah, <laughs> it was just oh, I'd like done it already. So I'm like, all right, I'll just write this note down, and I made it up as I went along. And people were like, oh wow, it's really cool. I'm like, yeah, yeah I totally made that up. I had no idea. What I did, but I thought,
2: that's fantastic.
0: I mean, since you are, you know, a writer, you've been doing this for a while. Can you sort of just improv a session or a campaign at the drop of a hat, or do you like having
1: something written down? It depends on how motivated I am. I'll be honest. <laughs> You know, if I'm really motivated to run it, I can do it at the drop of a hat. If I'm kind of like, uh, I'm not feeling it today, yeah, I kind of need something. So it really yeah. depends. You know, if I'm doing a con game, it's it's a little more free-flowing for a con game because I'm not as concerned with the overall... I'm really concerned with either playtesting things or just introducing players to something mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a campaign game where it's going to have long-term consequences of what yeah. I do as opposed to a, a campaign game. I mean... A, convention game that's going to be four hours and i probably won't see you again for the rest of my life so yeah right
2: do you guys this is a a again it's a bit of, bit of a silly question but a couple of episodes ago i shocked chris and maybe another guest i think by by saying that i had had my son and my daughter had i let them color in my game books um i'm just curious because that brought up a little bit of a discussion about whether you you baby your game books or, or preserve them, uh, preserve them. Or are you a throw it in the backpack, scribble it in the margins, underline stuff type of person? I'm curious what you guys, what kind of GM are you? Is, is your copy of the uh, player's handbook, or whatever, is it battered and torn and full of highlights?
1: It's on the second
2: one. Yeah. Chris, what about <laughs> you? You, you were visibly flinching when I, uh, when I described that, are you more of a yeah. take care of it? Um, I
0: think it's like if, if I do the damage, it's okay. But if somewhere, someone else were to do the damage, it's like, what are you doing to my books? <laughs> right? So everything is like dog-eared, right? I've got underlines and, and random stuff. I mean, <laughs> things like that. But yeah, but I mean, like uh, handing it to my daughter to just let her color something in there, they would just feel, I would just be hovering over her and be like,
2: no, like, let's, let's
0: put a <laughs> piece of
2: paper. Um, I did have to stop is, my son uh, yeah. from using uh, crayons because... It was getting the pages all, like, waxy and gross. Uh, so I was like, dude, you got to stick with colored pencils. Sorry, bud. Yeah. <laughs> got to have some boundaries.
0: It sounds like none of us really have, like, a, you know, a, a sealed climate-controlled storage facility for our game books, <laughs> anything like that. Do you, do you know anyone that – is there a book out there that if you acquired it, that would go in, like, the Mylar case?
1: You know – um, In the publishing industry, one of the most enjoyable events when you go to a uh, convention is to go to the auction. Okay. Because those are the serious people who have the serious collections. I mean, they will drop. I've seen them drop five to ten grand on a on a brown box or (sighs) a rare, you know, TSR piece. And you know, I've heard that their collections are. I've heard of collections that are in the millions of dollars. Oh, my yeah. God. It's just simply rare stuff. I you know, I have nothing in that rarefied air. So, I mean, if yeah. I were to acquire it, every now and then I think about spending that kind of money on something. I'm like, eh, I going to do with it? Where am I going to put it? I don't have that kind of storage facility for it, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I talked to um, this guy one time who, he was at, like, a convention or something, and he was selling knives, you know, like, of all things. And I was just talking with him about it and he said something that' was, like really stuck with me he's like you can't be both a collector and a salesperson of of an item right like there's this very like different mentality that it takes to be a collector of something versus someone who just like uses it or sells it right like it's just like a very very different sort of mentality yeah I think I would feel I would feel weird about having something that you're not allowed to touch
2: yeah I've had I don't have anything that uh, you know will pay for my kids college or anything like that <laughs> I have some older books that I think I probably should have not the like hermetically sealed, you know, vault, but I probably should have invested in some sort of better storage for them. I mm-hmm. think at this point, I mean I I probably still should, but it's just low <laughs> on like the budget priority right now, but I probably yeah. should get down there before uh, you know, before too much time goes by. But you know what's weird about having what's weird and unpleasant about having like kind of rare books is that Yeah, like you can't, you feel like you can't use them. I even have this sometimes when a book isn't all that rare, but just if it's out of print and it'll be difficult, I know it would be like a little difficult to get a copy of it again. I'm sad to say, it sometimes makes me think, I better not, not like, really run that because, like, I'll, you know, the book, it'll just inevitably get degraded in the course of hauling it around and running games. And I don't like that feeling. And so that's actually an incentive to me that helps me avoid the temptation to spend major bucks on, like, rare stuff because, mm-hmm. I don't know, I wouldn't feel able to use it, and I don't have the equipment to preserve it, and I don't even have the mm-hmm. energy to, like, eBay this, you know, this <laughs> stuff, so. No. What I'm
0: hearing is I should come over and just, like, rip one page out of all of your books just oh, so you, <laughs> you can get awful. over that. <laughs> yeah.
2: There's, there has been times when, so when I was younger, I was very, I don't, I don't want to use, I don't, I don't want to use medical terms for it, flippantly or whatever but i i cared to an extreme extent for like the physical shape of my books so if it got a dent in the corner that i found that just psychically upsetting to me and when it it was always a relief to me when a book would get damaged that i was trying to baby because then i could give myself permission to just like not worry about it at all anymore i now have permission to just toss the sucker around and like rip through it and not care that the binding is coming loose and stuff uh yeah. so i don't know sometimes i kind of want to go to my kids and i'm like hey when i'm not looking can you just shove this book off of the bookshelf and and <laughs> give it a big dent so that it it's broken goods and i can freely use it without worrying about it too. Anyway, sorry i'm probably uh revealing more of my psychological problems <laughs> as a <appropriate.
0: laughs> like gaming podcast. Yes, no, this is good. Yeah, well, we should we should wrap it up here. We've been going for a little bit. Um, yeah, this is really good. Tom, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. This was fantastic to hear about the Kickstarter and hear a little bit about um, game books and how you treat them. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. yeah, no, it was my pleasure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess, let's see. One last time, if you could just let us know where, where can people find you and find information about the the Kickstarter and Frog God games?
1: Uh, Yep, you can go to uh, our Facebook page, froggodgames.com, or you can, well, actually, your Facebook page wouldn't be froggodgames, it would just .com, it would just be froggodgames, duh. (laughs) Uh, You could find me on the socials, uh, Facebook, uh, TomConounce52, also at our uh, Discord server, uh, Games, and you could reach us there, and uh, we do have Instagram, but it's mostly for posting um, pictures, there's really no intercourse or interaction there,
2: so. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Well, all we right, really cool. appreciate yeah. you taking you. the time to uh, come on, and I would say good luck on your Kickstarter. But you're already having fantastic luck. Um, I hope <laughs> that you knock out all those stretch goals. Yeah, I can't wait to see uh, see how far that goes.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.
2: Cool. All right. Well, um,
1: I've been Chris Salzman.
2: I've been Andy Rao.
0: Remember, if your players are having fun, you're a great GM.